Well, the flooding, the local flooding has been all over, on all of our minds uh, this week, and no doubt some of you here in this room were affected by the flooding or have people close to you affected by the flooding. I know that a number of you have been involved in relief efforts in, in our community. Thank you for that. Um, some of you have, have inquired about how you might direct funds, and here at Faith, we've decided not to take an offering here at Faith, but we're encouraging people to give to a fund that's already established with the Greater Manhattan Community Foundation, and they'll receive uh, funds for a a long-term relief, and then they will disperse it as needed. We really trust them, feel like they'll have great discernment, better than we would, on how the funds should be used. Uh, Tuesday's e-blast will contain a link if you want to go to the foundation and make make contributions there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can come together and worship. And God, this day is a gift from you. This hour we have here is a gift from you. One will never have back. And so, God, we want to be fully present to you. We want to pay attention to your spirit and what you would say to us. And so, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that our hearts would be open to your word today. God, we do pray for those who are affected by the flooding. We ask for perseverance, for strength during the recovery process. We pray that those in need would get the help that they need financially and materially, the help they need relationally, people to come alongside them and support them, the wisdom they need for difficult decisions. And we are thankful for the generosity of this community. So many, Lord, have have pitched in and are helping in many different ways. And we thank you, God, for the the efforts of the body of Christ in all its forms here in Manhattan and uh, the way the the church has joined together. We pray you would continue to lead, prompt us to generosity. We pray, God, that people would be surprised and humbled by the, the support that they get from the community. And God, we do pray for our city. We pray for long term decisions that affect flooding, that affect housing in our community. Uh, these are complex issues, and God, we, so we ask for wisdom from above, wisdom that would be sufficient. <clears throat> so this is our prayer, God. And so as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would teach us. We uh, stand ready to uh, receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> This is the third service. This music is so amazing. I think I've been straining as I've sung. <laughs> and then preached two long sermons so far. I've got one long sermon to go. <clears throat> Alistair McIntyre tells, uh, tells kind of an amusing story that I've adapted for our purposes today. And so here's a scenario. Let's say you came in here today, you sat down, and you heard the woman sitting behind you say, The scientific name for the Harlequin duck is Histrionicus histrionicus. Now, how would you hear that? What what would you possibly think about that? Well, you wouldn't be able to understand that in a vacuum. The only way you could understand that is if you understood that it was part of a larger story. So here's three possible stories. So it could be that that woman is sitting next to someone she saw in the library yesterday who asked her flat out, could you tell me the scientific name for the Harlequin duck? And so that's a very natural thing for her to say, right? It makes total sense. Or it could be that this woman is, is in therapy, uh, kind of dealing with uh, just intense, crippling shyness, 
And her therapist has told her, I want you to just talk to total strangers. And she said, what, what do I say to a total stranger? And the therapist said, well, say anything you want. And so that's what she said. <laughs> and maybe she needs a little more coaching if that's actually the case. But the third story, it might be that she's a spy. She's a foreign spy, and she's trying to discern, is this my contact? And so protocol is, she says, the scientific name for the Harlequin duck is histrionicus. And if that's her contact, the contact will say, well, of course it is. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and so it, you see, you have to understand the story before you can understand the meaning of that statement. A similar thing is true in our lives. There is no way we can make sense of our lives. There is no way we can understand the meaning of our lives unless we understand the larger story that we find ourselves in. And so, for example, uh, it could be that, that uh, if I wanted to understand uh, the details of your life, I would ask you about your, your personal biography. I'd ask you about the family you grew up in. Uh, what were the things that shaped you as a child? What were the, the tough or traumatic things you experienced? What were your greatest joys? I would ask you, what was your family like? How did your parents treat you? That might help me make sense of the details of your life. If you wanted to go deeper, you would broaden it out and you would say, what is the story that's told in my country or in my culture? Because we all think things and feel things and believe things based on what we're told in our different cultures. As you're aware, a person from one culture and a person from another culture can look at the exact same series of events and interpret them very differently. And so unless you understand the broader story that you're living in, you don't really understand who you are, why you do things, why you say things. But eventually, if you, if you really want to go deeper, you would ask the big question. You would ask, is there a true story of the whole world? Is there a true story for all of humanity? Is there a grand overarching narrative that explains what happens to everyone and everything? Or as Michael Goheen puts it, he says, is there a real story that provides a framework of meaning for all people in all times and places, and therefore for my own life in this world? And as you're probably aware, different people, will, different faiths will give you different answers to that question. And so some people flat out will tell you, uh, no. There is no overarching narrative for history. We are here. We are a product of chance. And when you die, that's it. Life is over. So in this life, do as much good as you can, but it really doesn't matter how you live your life because once you die, it's over. Other people would tell you, well, actually, we're in this life and we, we, uh, it might be a form of reincarnation where what you do in this life affects the way you're going to live in the next life. And so your good and your bad are going to follow you into your next existence. Other people would say, actually, God is basically a judge and he grades on the curve. And so if you live your life really pretty good and you do a lot of good works, he's going to say, okay, you've earned your way into heaven. I accept you for eternity. And so you hear all these different stories and many different variations of it. Well, the Bible also has a distinctive narrative. It has a true story that explains the history of the universe, the past history of the universe. It gives an explanation for why things are the way they are presently. And it looks to the future and it, it, it tells us what will be the case in the future. 
And so the plot line of the Bible can be viewed as a drama with four acts. And we've got a graphic for you. The four acts in the drama of Scripture are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Today we're beginning an eight-week sermon series, and we're going to take two weeks on each of those four acts. And so this week and next week, we're going to talk about creation from Genesis 1 and 2, or more accurately, we're going to talk about the Creator. Then we're going to take two weeks and talk about the fall, which is designated by the apple with two bites out of it. And uh, the fall is the rebellion of humanity, and we're going to talk about the fallout of the fall, how it's affected our own souls, how it's affected our, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with creation. And then we're going to talk about redemption. And the vast majority of Scripture, from the end of Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, talks about redemption, God's plan of redeeming all things. He starts with Israel, and it culminates, and it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we'll take two weeks. Uh, finally, we'll talk about the restoration. And this is probably the most uh, neglected aspect of the drama of Scripture in our day, and we're the most confused about this, what the Bible says. <clears throat> and what we're going to see is that God has promised to restore all of creation, not merely humanity, but all of creation to its original purpose. And so we're going to see the Bible begins with God creating the heaven and the earth, and it ends with the new heavens and the new earth coming down. And so it's a, it's a drama that God has, has designed and brings to fulfillment. And so our somewhat ambitious goals for this series are, number one, we want to provide a grid for reading and understanding the Scripture. If you don't understand the plot of the Bible, the plot line, you're not going to be able to understand the details. It will be like hearing that statement about the duck. You'll dip into to the book of Leviticus, you'll pull out a command, and you won't have any idea why would God command that. Or you'll dip into the Gospels and hear a saying of Jesus, and it will just seem like nonsense to you. And so we hope that this, this series gives you kind of a grid for understanding the different portions of Scripture and individual teachings in scripture. The second goal flows from the first. We hope to increase our confidence in the triune God. And so understanding the plot of the Bible is not an end in itself. The Bible is about God. It talks about a lot of different subjects, but first and foremost, fundamentally, the Bible is about God. And so imagine how your confidence in God, that's another word, way to talk about faith, your confidence in God will increase. If you are convinced that God is the creator of all things, everything, and he's created everything good, and that when humanity rebelled, he didn't give up, he didn't wash his hands, but he, he's implemented this plan of redemption, uh, first through Israel and then through Jesus, his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And he has promised to redeem all things and to restore creation to his original purpose. If you understand that God is committed this way, it will give you great confidence in who he is and what he's doing. And we're going to see it each week that, that the scriptures move from theological truths about God to very personal experiences with God. And so it's one thing to believe that God is the creator. Yes, I believe that. Check the box. It's another thing to relate to him and to believe that he is the creator, the creator, and all the implications for my life. And then the third, the third uh, goal is to help us find our place 
in the biblical story. And that's a phrase taken from a book called The Drama of Scripture. We're using it, we're referencing it through this series. But the drama of Scripture gives us a grid for understanding our own lives and our own circumstances. And if we don't understand where we fit, our place in the drama of Scripture, we can't begin to understand all these baffling things that happen to us, the good things even. We won't be able to understand the beauty and just the magnificence of creation. We won't be able to understand the goodness that exists in the human heart. And we won't begin to understand the, the trauma in this world and the suffering and all of the, the fallout of the fall unless we understand the plot line. But if we do understand our place in the drama, we'll know what, what we're supposed to do with money, what we're supposed to do with our bodies, uh, how relationships are supposed to, or, or get, why relationships are given to us. And so instead of seeing the details of our lives as just kind of random or seeing them as insignificant spiritually, we will understand that everything we are and everything we do can be part of God's drama in this world. And so this should give us great purpose and great energy in walking with God through this life, confident about what lies ahead. And so with those goals in mind, today we're going to consider the first act in the drama of Scripture. We're going to consider uh, Genesis 1. And so if you are able, if you need, this is a long passage, if you need to remain seated or you need to sit halfway through, that's fine. But if you're able, I would ask you to stand and hear, I'm going to read Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. This is the word of God. This is God's word for us today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. 
he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to every thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Amen. You can be seated. You know, sometimes the, the, the... Obvious truths from a passage like this are obscured by debates over how God created everything that we see. But today we're going to look at three foundational truths. They're they're very apparent, very obvious from Genesis 1. They're truths about God as creator. And the first is that God is the creator of everything and everyone. So notice again that God is the subject of the first sentence of the first verse in the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. 
created the heavens and the earth. And so Moses is saying that God created everything. The expression heavens and earth refers to every created thing. It's found in Genesis 1-1. As we saw, it's also found in Genesis 2-1. And so it's these bookends on the, the creation account. And so everything in between is describing the heavens and the earth. And so he's confirming that in the beginning, at the beginning of time as we understand it, God created everything. And so Moses says this, and he's establishing, among other things, that everything and everyone must answer to God. There is nothing in all of creation that's outside of his power or outside of his jurisdiction. The entire creation must answer to the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that's very simple. But what I want us to see is how in, in the scripture, this, this somewhat abstract idea that God made everything and everyone, it becomes a very personal reality, a very personal experience for people. They related to God. They, they, they understood the implications of God being the creator. For example, if you go to the last book of the Bible in Revelation 4.11, there's this description of a scene where creatures are face down and they're worshiping, the before, they're worshiping before the throne of God. And this is what we read. They cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is God worthy? Well, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and they were created. And so as the creator of all things, the, the point that's made throughout Scripture is therefore that he alone is worthy of our worship. Romans 1 makes this, makes this uh, statement. Basically, it's been said that the, the human heart is an idol factory. We just naturally, we move from worshiping the creator to worshiping the created. And so you find examples of this throughout scripture. People uh, create things and they worship them. Kings such as Nebuchadnezzar demand that people bow down and worship an image of himself. They're basically saying, you must worship me. All my subjects was, must worship me. You find nations that are worshiping the sun and the stars. But scripture makes clear that since God is the creator of everything, he alone can be worshiped. None of the created should be worshiped. Another implication, in, in, uh, and I find this fascinating in Psalm 24, is that since God is the creator of everything, he's also the owner of everything. In Psalm 24, 1 and 2, we read, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so because he is the creator of everything, he is also the owner, the possessor of everything. The earth and all it contains, the world and everyone who dwells in it. And so follow me, this is, this is real complicated logic. Since God owns everything, that means that you and I own nothing right? And so scripture will establish that we are stewards. We are entrusted what we have for a short period of time, but we are stewards to care for it on behalf of another, namely 
our creator. And this is explicit in a lot of places in scripture. In 1 Timothy 6, for example, Paul is trying to encourage contentment. And he argues you should be content with what you have. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You know, as I've thought about it this week, I think somebody uh, who understood it, this, this truth perhaps better than anybody in the Bible except Jesus. Uh, he understood that God is the creator and therefore the owner, the possessor of everything was Job. In, in Job chapter, chapter 1, when, when he and his wife experienced this devastating loss, all of their kids, all of their wealth was wiped out. This is how he responded to God. It says he worshiped God. In Job 1.20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. What kind of a person would worship God when everything he loved was taken away from him. Well, in verse 2, this is what Job really believed. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You don't worship God when disaster strikes if you think that you own the things you have and you deserve to keep them. But if you understand that God is the creator, he is the owner of everything, he has the right to give to you, he has the right to give to somebody else as well, but he has the right to give and therefore he has the right to take away. And so do you see how Job really understood his life in light of the larger story in which he found himself living. He was living in a world in which God is the creator and owner of everything. And it made all the difference when he experienced such suffering. A second foundational truth about God that's found in Genesis 1 is that God's creation is very good. We saw that very clearly. Verse 2 again, it tells us that God shaped an earth that was formless and void. It lacked form. It was, it was void. It was empty. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And in the flow of the narrative, I think he's basically saying that the created world was uninhabitable by human beings. The only other place where that term formless and void is found is in Jeremiah chapter 4, and it's talking about a land that's desolate. It's not suitable for, for to be inhabited by humans. The subsequent verses in the account, verses 3 through 25, stress that God transformed the the earth into a place that was inhabitable by humanity. And so over and over we read, God spoke and it was so. And, And this is the first time, and this is a theme throughout the Bible, God's word is powerful. It is creative. We can't live without it. We should hang on every word that God says. But he spoke and it was so. He provided lights in the heavens. He separated the land and the sea. He caused the earth to produce vegetation, fruit trees. He brought into existence living creatures in the air and on the land and in the seas. And as we'll talk about more fully in a few minutes, he created humanity uh, in his own image. And so six times in the creation account, we see God saw, he looked at what he had created, and he saw that it was good. 
And then the seventh time, we read this at the very end of the creation account, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so this is a basic foundational truth that what God created, he created it very good. And God's good creation is an expression of his own goodness. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that there are other invisible attributes that are apparent in creation. But what's stressed here is that God's goodness is apparent in creation. And this, this reality, this truth has all sorts of implications. Uh, one of those implications would involve creation care caring for creation in a responsible way. In Genesis 1 and 2, both mention that God has entrusted his good creation to us of all people to, to care for it. And we'll talk more about this next week when we look at Genesis 2. But the basic idea is that we as humanity, we are to care for creation in a way that's compatible with the goodness of creation as God made it. Another implication, there are implications for the rest of the drama of Scripture. Uh, the fact that God, God's creation is very good means that after the fall, after the rebellion of humanity, his redemption and his restoration will also include creation. When you think about it, it would be a, a strange thing indeed if God had created this magnificent creation uh, everything we see in the heavens and on earth and in the seas. And all of it was spoiled by the fall. And yet the only thing he redeemed was the souls of human beings. And you hear this all the time. I think it's repeated so often that we just accept it as truth. But the, by contrast, the Bible says that when God redeems and he restores, he's going to restore all things. And so the Bible begins with the creation of the heaven and the earth, and it ends with the new heavens and the new earth. And so there are implications for the rest of the plot of the Bible. We read in Romans 8, for example, that creation longs for the day. Creation longs for the day that the children of God are revealed. That's at the return of Christ. It says in Romans 8 that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruptions. Corruption. And so there are implications for the rest of the plot of Scripture, the rest of, of human history. There are implications for the essential nature of humanity and the nature of our salvation after the fall. As you're aware, some faiths uh, would teach that the goal of spirituality is to break loose, to escape from the material world. Material is bad, spiritual is good. And so the real goal is to escape from our embodied existence and have some kind of disembodied spiritual uh, uh, existence somewhere. But the Bible has, has a very different picture. It teaches that we were created as embodied beings. Our bodies are part of the creation that God pronounced very good. Therefore, if our salvation is going to be complete, it has to include the redemption and the restoration of our bodies. And so when you read the New Testament, it makes very clear that if you're a follower of Christ, you're to glorify God in your body, with your body. Present the members of your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. And it says over and over that at the return of Christ, we will be given resurrected bodies, bodies akin to that of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. 
And so the idea, the, 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 the truth that God created everything and pronounced it very good has, has all sorts of implications for this life and for the future as described in the Bible. Are you all okay? You doing okay? We got, uh, I'm just going for it here. We got one more truth from Genesis 1 I want us to think about. And that's that God created humanity, male and female, as the crown of his good creation. We read, that the crea- we read about the creation of humanity beginning in verse 26, and, and several details suggest that humanity is the crown, the crowning feature of creation. For example, whereas uh, the living creatures were made after their kind, humanity is going to be made in the image of God, essentially after God's kind. And whereas the earth brought forth vegetation and the earth brought forth the living creatures. God himself created man and woman. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is one of the most studied and discussed and written, written about uh, verses in the entire Bible and for good reason, because it establishes our identity as humanity, and it establishes our relationship with the rest of creation and with one another, and our relationship to God. And the emphasis here is upon our intimate connection with God. Scholars debate the the significance of the plurals in verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And there are a number of options. Uh, It could be the royal plural, like when the king says, let us have breakfast, meaning bring me breakfast. Uh, It could be that God is talking to the royal courts, uh, the the beings that surround his throne in heaven. Uh, It could be that it's a veiled reference to the Trinity. Uh, perhaps for me, the most helpful observation is that just, of, just as God speaks of himself in the plural, he will speak of humanity cre- created in, in his image in the plural. He will create man, both male and female. And so the image of God will be exhibited most fully in relationship. In light of what's revealed in the New Testament about God, uh, I think we can reasonably conclude that relationship within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is reflected in God creating humanity, male and female. The term image is an interesting, interesting term. It means a physical representation of something. An image in the Bible is always something you can see. And so when God made man, he was making a representation of himself that people can see. And this is one of the reasons why God said that you shall not make a likeness of me. He said, don't make idols of me. Why? Because I've already got my image in the earth. I already have a representation of myself. You want to know what I'm like? Look at my people. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, what, what, what Jesus says to the watching world is, you want to know what I'm like? Look at the body of Christ. I am dwelling in my people. They're being recreated in the image of Christ. And so you don't need representations. Look at my people. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every living creature that moves. And so as image bearers, we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is, a, this is more than a command to have a lot of babies and spread out. This is a command, take my image to the, the, every corner of the globe. And this command, it foreshadows the promise to Abraham. He said, in you, Abraham, this seed, this, this descendant of yours, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it foreshadows the great commission to take the gospel and make disciples of all nations, every ethnic group, every grouping of people on the planet. And so it foreshadows that. The command to subdue or exercise dominion, that's kingly, kingly talk. It reflects the perspective that God is the Lord. He is the king over all creation and that we are his royal stewards. We have the responsibility to rule over creation in a way that's compatible with him as our creator king. And we'll talk about this more later. But if you go and you, you read Scripture, and how did the, the authors of Scripture look back at this idea that we are the crown of creation? A great place to go is Psalm 8. And we're going to read a few verses here. And David looked back at creation. He takes specific phrases from Genesis 1, and he marvels. He is amazed at what God has done. He says this, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. Some translations say a little lower than the angels. It's the word Elohim. It can be translated either way. And you crown him with glory and majesty. And you make him rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And so for David, when he thought about our exalted position in creation, it was supremely humbling for him. He said, I can't believe, God, you even notice us, much less make us the crown of creation. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed. And he fell down and he worshiped. And so for David, being made in the image of God, it wasn't a merely an abstract truth. It helped him find his place in the biblical in the biblical story, God has assigned him, assigned us to be stewards who would compassionately rule over the rest of creation. That fact humbled him to the core. And as we've seen throughout these references to creation, it led him to worship. And so he declared this in the last verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us insight, give us a vision for your creation and how you are the creator. May we relate to you this week as our creator. May we worship you this week and you alone. May we be humbled at the place you have given us in your creation. May we understand the goodness, the very goodness of creation, including uh, ourselves, our bodies, one another. God, may we honor you and exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.